Chapter Two of the Fixed Period by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dennis Lane. Chapter Two. Gabriel Crasweller. I will now begin my tale. It is above thirty years since I commenced my agitation in Britannula. We were a small people and had not then been blessed by separation. But we were, I think, particularly intelligent. We were the very cream, as it were, that had been skimmed from the milk pail of the people of a wider colony, themselves gifted with more than ordinary intelligence. We were the elite of the selected population of New Zealand. I think I may say that no race so well informed ever before set itself down to form a new nation. I am now nearly sixty years old very nearly fit for the college, which, alas, will never be open for me, and I was nearly thirty when I began to be in earnest as to the fixed period. At that time my dearest friend and most trusted coadjutor was Gabriel Crasweller. He was ten years my senior then, and is now therefore fit for deposition in the college, were the college there to receive him. He was one of those who brought with them merino sheep into the colony. At great labour and expense he exported from New Zealand a small flock of choice animals with which he was successful from the first. He took possession of the lands of Little Christchurch, five or six miles from Gladstonopolis, and showed great judgment in the selection, a prettier spot, as it turned out, for the fattening of both beef and mutton, and for the growth of wool it would have been impossible to have found. Everything that human nature wants was there at Little Christchurch. The streams which watered the land were bright and rapid, and always running. The grasses were particularly rich, and the old English fruit trees, which we had brought with us from New Zealand, throve there with an exuberant fertility of which the mother country, I am told, knows nothing. He had imported pheasant's eggs, and salmon spawn, and young deer, and black cock, and grouse, and those beautiful little Alderney cows, no bigger than good-sized dogs, which, when milked, give nothing but cream. All these things throve with him uncommonly, so that it may be declared of him that his lines had fallen in pleasant places. But he had no son, and therefore, in discussing with him, as I did daily, the question of the fixed period, I promised him that it should be my lot to deposit him in the sacred college when the day of his withdrawal should have come. He had been married before we left New Zealand, and was childless when he made for himself and his wife his homestead at Little Christchurch, and there, after a few years, a daughter was born to him. I ought to have remembered, when I promised to him that last act of friendship, that it might become the duty of that child's husband to do for him with filial reverence the loving work which I had undertaken to perform. Many and most interesting were the conversations held between Crasweller and myself on the great subject which filled our hearts. He undoubtedly was sympathetic, and took delight in expatiating on all those benefits that would come to the world from the race of mankind which knew nothing of the debility of old age. He saw the beauty of the theory as well as did I myself, and would speak often of the weakness of that pretended tenderness which would fear to commence a new operation in regard to the feelings of the men and women of the old world. Can any man love another better than I do you? I would say to him with energy, and yet would I scruple for a moment to deposit you in the college when the day had come? 
I should lead you in with that perfect reverence which it is impossible that the young should feel for the old when they become feeble and incapable. I doubt now whether he relished these allusions to his own seclusion. He would run away from his own individual case and generalise widely about some future time, and when the time for voting came, he certainly did vote for seventy-five. But I took no offence at his vote. Gabriel Crasweller was almost my dearest friend, and, as his girl grew up, it was a matter of regret to me that my only son was not quite old enough to be her husband. Eva Crasweller was, I think, the most perfect piece I ever beheld of youthful feminine beauty. I have not yet seen those English beauties of which so much is said in their own romances, but whom the young men from New York and San Francisco, who make their way to Gladstonopolis, do not seem to admire very much. Eva was perfect in symmetry, in features, in complexion, and in simplicity of manners. All languages are the same to her, but that accomplishment has become so common in Britannula that but little is thought of it. I do not know whether she ravished our ears most with the old-fashioned piano and the near obsolete violin, or with the modern mausometor or the more perfect melpomeneon. It was wonderful to hear the way with which she expressed herself at the meeting held about the rising buildings of the college, when she was only sixteen. But I think she touched me most with just a roly-poly pudding, which she made with her own fair hands for our dinner one Sunday at Little Christchurch. And once, when I saw her by chance take a kiss from her lover behind the door, I felt that it was a pity indeed that a man should ever become old. Perhaps, however, in the eyes of some, her brightest charm lay in the wealth which her father possessed. His sheep had greatly increased in number. The valleys were filled with his cattle, and he could always sell his salmon for half a crown a pound, and his pheasants for seven and sixpence a brace. Everything had thriven with Crasweller, and everything must belong to Eva, as soon as he should have been led into the college. Eva's mother was now dead, and no other child had been born. Crasweller had also embarked his money largely in the wool trade, and had become a sleeping partner in the house of Grundle and Grab. He was an older man, by ten years, than either of his partners, but yet Grundle's eldest son, Abraham, was older than Eva when Crasweller lent his money to the firm. It was soon known who was to be the happiest man in the empire. It was young Abraham, by whom Eva was kissed behind the door that Sunday when we ate the roly-poly pudding. Then she came into the room, and with her eyes raised to heaven, and with a halo of glory almost round her head, as she poured forth her voice, she touched the mausometor and gave us the old hundredth psalm. She was a fine girl at all points, and had been quite alive to the dawn of the fixed-period system. But at this time, on the memorable occasion of the eating of that dinner, it first began to strike me that my friend Crasweller was getting very near his fixed period, and it occurred to me to ask myself questions as to what might be the daughter's wishes. It was the state of her feelings, rather, that would push itself into my mind. Quite lately he had said nothing about it, nor had she. On that Sunday morning, when he and his girl were at church, for Crasweller had stuck to the old habit of saying his prayers in a special place on a special day, I had discussed the matter with young Grundle. Nobody had been into the college as yet. Three or four had died naturally, but Crasweller was about to be the first. We were arranging that he should be attended by pleasant visitors till within the last week or two, 
and I was making special allusion to the law, which required that he should abandon all control of his property immediately on his entering the college. I suppose he would do that, said Grundle, expressing considerable interest by the tone of his voice. Oh, certainly, said I. He must do that in accordance with the law, but he can make his will up to the very moment in which he is deposited. He had then about twelve months to run. I suppose there was not a man or a woman in the community who was not accurately aware of the very day of Craswell's birth. We had already introduced the habit of tattooing on the backs of the babies the day on which they were born, and we were succeeding in operating also on many of the children who had come into the world before the great law. Some there were who would not submit on behalf of themselves or their children, and we did look forward to some little confusion in this matter. A register had of course been commenced, and there were already those who refused to state their exact ages. But I had been long on the lookout for this, and had a little book of my own in which were inscribed the periods of all those who had come to Britannula with us. And since I had first thought of the fixed period, I had been very careful to note faithfully the births as they occurred. The reader will see how important, as time went on, it would become to have an accurate record, and I already then feared that there might be some want of fidelity, after I myself had been deposited. But my friend Crasweller was the first on the list, and there was no doubt in the empire as to the exact day on which he was born. All Britannula knew that he would be the first, and that he was to be deposited on the 13th of June, 1980. In conversation with my friend, I had frequently alluded to the very day, to the happy day, as I used to call it, before I became acquainted with his actual feelings, and he never ventured to deny that on that day he would become sixty-seven. I have attempted to describe his daughter Eva, and I must say a word as to the personal qualities of her father. He too was a remarkably handsome man, and though his hair was beautifully white, had fewer of the symptoms of age than any old man I had before known. He was tall, robust and broad, and there was no beginning even of a stoop about him. He spoke always clearly and audibly, and he was known for the firm voice with which he would perform occasionally at some of our decimal readings. We had fixed our price at a decimal in order that the sum so raised might be used for the ornamentation of the college. Our population at Gladstonopolis was so thriving that we found it as easy to collect ten pennies as one. At these readings, Gabriel Crasweller was the favourite performer, and it had begun to be whispered by some caitiffs who would willingly disarrange the whole starry system for their own immediate gratification, that Crasweller should not be deposited because of the beauty of his voice. And then the difficulty was somewhat increased by the care and precision with which he attended to his own business. He was as careful as ever about his flocks, and at shearing time would stand all day in the wool-shed to see the packing of his wool and the marking of his bales. It would be a pity, said to me a Britannulist one day, a man younger than myself, to lock up old Crasweller and let the business go into the hands of young Grundle. Young Grundle will never know half as much about sheep in spite of his conceit, and Crasweller is a deal fitter for his work than for living idle in the college till you should put an end to him. There was much in these words which made me very angry. According to this man's feelings, the whole system was to be made to suit itself to the peculiarities of one individual constitution. A man who so spoke could have known nothing of the general beauty of the fixed period, 
and he had alluded to the manner of depositing in most disrespectful terms. I had felt it to be essentially necessary, so to maintain the dignity of the ceremony, as to make it appear as unlike an execution as possible, and this depositing of Crasweller was to be the first, and should, according to my own intentions, be attended with a peculiar grace and reverence. I don't know what you call locking up, said I angrily. Had Mr. Crasweller been about to be dragged to a felon's prison, you could not have used more opprobrious language. And as to putting an end to him, you must, I think, be ignorant of the method proposed for adding honour and glory to the last moments in this world of those dear friends whose happy lot it will be to be withdrawn from the world's troubles amidst the love and veneration of their fellow subjects. As to the actual mode of transition, there had been many discussions held by the executive in President Square, and it had at last been decided that certain veins should be opened, while the departing one should, under the influence of morphine, be gently entranced within a warm bath. I, as President of the Empire, had agreed to use the lancet in the first two or three cases, thereby intending to increase the honours conferred. Under these circumstances, I did feel the sting bitterly when he spoke of my putting an end to him. But you have not, I said, at all realised the feeling of the ceremony. A few ill-spoken words, such as these you have just uttered, will do us more harm in the minds of many than all your voting will have done good. In answer to this, he merely repeated his observation that Crasweller was a very bad specimen to begin with. He has got ten years of work in him, said my friend, and yet you intend to make away with him without the slightest compunction. Make away with him? What an expression to use, and this from the mouth of one who had been a determined fixed periodist. It angered me to think that men should be so little reasonable as to draw deductions as to an entire system from a single instance. Crasweller might in truth be strong and hearty at the fixed period, but that period had been chosen with reference to the community at large, and what though he might have to depart a year or two before he was worn out, still he would do so with everything around him to make him happy, and would depart before he had ever known the agony of a headache. Looking at the entire question with the eyes of reason, I could not but tell myself that a better example of a triumphant beginning to our system could not have been found. But yet, there was in it something unfortunate. Had our first hero been compelled to abandon his business by old age, had he become doting over its details, parsimonious or extravagant, or even short-sighted in his speculations, public feeling, than which nothing is more ignorant, would have risen in favour of the fixed period. How true is the President's reasoning, the people would have said. Look at Crasweller. He would have ruined Little Christchurch had he stayed there much longer. But everything he did seemed to prosper, and it occurred to me at last that he forced himself into abnormal sprightliness, with a view of bringing disgrace upon the law of the fixed period. If there were any such feeling, I regard it as certainly mean. On the day after the dinner at which Eva's pudding was eaten, Abraham Grundle came to me at the executive hall, and said that he had a few things to discuss with me of importance. Abraham was a good-looking young man, with black hair and bright eyes, and a remarkably handsome moustache. 
and he was one well inclined to business, in whose hands the firm of Grundle, Grab, and Crasweller was likely to thrive. But I myself had never liked him much. I had thought him to be a little wanting in that reverence which he owed to his elders, and to be, moreover, somewhat over-fond of money. It had leaked out that, though he was no doubt attached to Eva Crasweller, he had thought quite as much of Little Christchurch, and though he could kiss Eva behind the door, after the ways of young men, still he was more intent on the fleeces than on her lips. "'I want to say a word to you, Mr. President,' he began, "'upon a subject that disturbs my conscience very much.' "'Your conscience?' said I. "'Yes, Mr. President.' I believe you're aware that I'm engaged to marry Miss Crasweller. It may be as well to explain here that my eldest son, as fine a boy as ever delighted a mother's eye, was only two years younger than Eva, and that my wife, Mrs. Neverbend, had of late got it into her head that he was quite old enough to marry the girl. It was in vain that I told her that all had been settled while Jack was still in Didascalion. He had been colonel of the curriculum, as they now call the head-boy, but Eva had not then cared for colonels of curriculums, but had thought more of young Grundle's moustache. My wife declared that all that was altered, that Jack was, in fact, a much more manly fellow than Abraham, with his shiny bit of beard, and that if one could get a maiden's heart, we should find that Eva thought so. In answer to this, I bade her hold her tongue, and remember that in Britannula a promise was always held to be as good as a bond. I suppose a young woman may change her mind in Britannula as well as elsewhere, said my wife. I turned all this over in my mind, because the slopes of Little Christchurch are very alluring, and they would all belong to Eva so soon. And then it would be well as I was about to perform for Crasweller so important a portion of his final ceremony, our close intimacy should be drawn still nearer by a family connection. I did think of it, but then it occurred to me that the girl's engagement to young Grundle was an established fact, and it did not behoove me to sanction the breach of a contract. "'Oh, yes,' said I to the young man, "'I am aware that there is an understanding to that effect between you and Eva's father.' "'And between me and Eva, I can assure you.' Having observed the kiss behind the door on the previous day, I could not deny the truth of this assertion. "'It's quite understood,' continued Abraham, "'and I have always thought that it would take place at once, "'so that Eva might get used to her new life "'before her papa was deposited.' To this I merely bowed my head, as though to signify that it was a matter with which I was not personally concerned. I had taken it for granted that my old friend would like to see his daughter settled, and little Christchurch put into his daughter's hands before he should bid adieu to his own subluminary affairs, I remarked, when I found that he paused. We all thought so, up at the warehouse, said he. I and father, and Grab, and Postlecott, our chief clerk. Postlecott is the next but three on the books, and is getting very melancholy but he's especially anxious just at present to see how Crasweller bears it. What has all that to do with Eva's marriage? I suppose I might marry her, but he hasn't made any will. What does that matter? There is nobody to interfere with Eva. But he might go off, Mr. Neverbend, whispered Grundle. And where should I be? If he was to get across to Auckland, or to Sydney, 
and to leave someone to manage that property for him, what could you do? That's what I want to know. The law says that he shall be deposited on a certain day. He will become as nobody in the eye of the law, said I, with all the authority of a president. But if he and his daughter have understood each other, and if some deed be forthcoming by which little Christchurch shall have been left to trustees, and if he goes on living at Sydney, let us say on the fat of the land, drawing all the income, and leaving the trustees as legal owners, where shall I be then? In that case, said I, having taken two or three minutes for consideration, in that case I presume the property would be confiscated by law, and would go to his natural heir. Now, if his natural heir be then your wife, it will be just the same as though the property were yours. Young Grundle shook his head. I don't know what more you would want. At any rate, there is no more for you to get. I confess that at that moment the idea of my boy's chance of succeeding with the heiress did present itself to my mind. According to what my wife had said, Jack would have jumped at the girl with just what she stood up in, and had sworn to his mother, when he had been told that morning about the kiss behind the door, that he would knock that brute's head off his shoulders before many days were gone by. Looking at the matter merely on behalf of Jack, it appeared to me that Little Christchurch would, in that case, be quite safe. Let Crasweller be deposited, or run away to Sydney. You do not know for certain about the confiscation of the property, said Abraham. I have told you as much, Mr. Grundle, as it is fit that you should know, I replied with severity. For the absolute condition of the law, you must look in the statute book, and not come to the President of the Empire. Abraham Grundle then departed. I had assumed an angry air, as though I were offended with him for troubling me on a matter by referring simply to an individual. But he had in truth given rise to very serious and solemn thoughts. Could it be that Crasweller, my own confidential friend, the man to whom I had trusted the very secrets of my soul on this important matter, could it be that he should be unwilling to be deposited when the day had come? Could it be that he should be anxious to fly from his country and her laws, just as the time had arrived when those laws might operate upon him for the benefit of that country? I could not think that he was so vain, so greedy, so selfish, and so unpatriotic. But this was not all. Should he attempt to fly, could we prevent his flying? And, if he did fly, what step should we take next? The government of New South Wales was hostile to us on the very matter of the fixed period, and certainly would not surrender him in obedience to any law of extradition. And he might leave his property to trustees, who would manage it on his behalf. Although, as far as Britannula was concerned, he would be beyond the reach of law, and regarded even as being without the pale of life. And, if he, the first of the fixed periodists, were to run away, the fashion of so running would become common. We should thus be rid of our old men, and our object would be so far attained. But, looking forward, I could see at a glance that if one or two wealthy members of our community were thus to escape, it would be almost impossible to carry out the law with reference to those who should have no such means. But that which vexed me most was that Gabriel Crasweller should desire to escape. 
that he should be anxious to throw over the whole system to preserve the poor remnant of his life if he would do so who could be expected to abstain if he should prove false when the moment came who could prove true and he the first the very first on our list young grundle had now left me and as i sat thinking of it i was for a moment tempted to abandon the fixed period altogether but as i remained there in silent meditation better thoughts came to me had i dared to regard myself as the foremost spirit of my age and should i thus be turned back by the human weakness of one poor creature who had not sufficiently collected the strength of his heart to be able to look death in the face and to laugh him down it was a difficulty a difficulty the more it might be the crushing difficulty which would put an end to the system as far as my existence was concerned but i bethought me how many early reformers had perished in their efforts and how seldom it had been given to the first man to scale the walls of prejudice and force himself into the citadel of reason but they had not yielded when things had gone against them and though they had not brought their visions down to the palpable touch of humanity still they had persevered and their efforts had not been altogether lost to the world so it shall be with me said i though i may never live to deposit a human being within that sanctuary and though i may be doomed by the foolish prejudice of men to drag out a miserable existence amidst the sorrows and weakness of old age though it may never be given to me to feel the ineffable comforts of a triumphant deposition still my name will be handed down to coming ages and i shall be spoken of as the first who endeavoured to save grey hairs from being brought with sorrow to the grave i am now writing on board h m gunboat john bright for the tyrannical slaves of a modern monarch have taken me in the flesh and are carrying me off to england so that as they say all that nonsense of a fixed period may die away in britannula they think poor ignorant fighting men that such a theory can be made to perish because one individual shall have been mastered but no the idea will still live and in ages to come men will prosper and be strong and thrive unpolluted by the greed and cowardice of second childhood because john neverbend was at one time president of britannula it occurred to me then as i sat meditating over the tidings conveyed to me by abraham grundle that it would be well that i should see Crasweller and talk to him freely on the subject it had sometimes been that by my strength i had reinvigorated his halting courage this suggestion that he might run away as the day of his deposition drew nigh or rather that others might run away had been the subject of some conversation between him and me how will it be he had said if they mizzle he had intended to allude to the possible premature departure of those who were about to be deposited men will never be so weak i said i suppose you'd take all their property every stick of it property is a thing that can be conveyed away we should keep a sharp lookout upon themselves there might be a writ you know nay exeant regno if we are driven to a pinch that will be the last thing to do 
that I should be sorry to be driven to express my fear of human weakness by any general measure of that kind. It would be tantamount to an accusation of cowardice against the whole empire. Crasweller had only shaken his head, but I had understood him to shake it on the part of the human race generally, and not on his own behalf. End of chapter 2 Recording by Dennis Lane in Pretoria, South Africa.